Hello and welcome to our first Unenlightenment podcast. My name is Eric English. I am your resident philosopher, theologian, and ninja. Well, we have a good one here today for you. We have Brian McLaren in the house. Most of the audience will know Brian, but let me give a brief introduction here. He is an author, speaker, activist, public theologian, podcaster. He is a former pastor. He's written a thousand books, A New Kind of Christian, A Generous Orthodoxy, and Faith After Doubt, just to name a few. You name it, he does it, and he is here with us today. Welcome, Brian. Hey, nice to be with you, Eric. Get started with the interview just a little bit. I'm open to where our conversation goes, um, but I have a little bit of a framework here to get us started. Uh, I want to first talk, uh, ask you some questions, some church culture questions, and then after that, uh, we're going to jump into your book a little bit. How does that sound? Sounds great. Good. Um, I can't believe it has been 20 years since uh, New Kind of Christian has been published. That, uh, that time has gone by fairly quickly. Uh, I still remember when, reading that for the first time when it first came out. And I just, when I was doing the math, uh, preparing for this interview, I was like, I can't believe 20 years has gone by. Man, did you, it's hard to believe. Did you imagine uh, where things would be today, 20 years into the future when you were first writing that book? <laughs> oh my goodness. It's just crazy. It feels like everything has accelerated, you know, at an exponential rate. Uh, oh my goodness, that's right. Yeah, to think that um, New Kind of Christian came out just before uh, September 11th, uh, and then you think all that's happened with that, and then you think the the religious right was a thing, but how it's just weaponized into Trumpism in these last 20 years. Uh, that's a big deal. Uh, so much, so much has changed. And, you know, the kind of issues that I was trying to raise in New Kind of Christian, I, I thought a few people maybe will get this by the time I die. <laughs> and it's just amazing how, uh, no, the uptake has been so much faster than I or any of my friends really imagine. Yeah, it's really uh, just excel, the, just excel how things have accelerated and how um, your original book just... Uh, uh, kind of a, exploded. I don't know if it was a gradual one. Um, I just remember one day uh, in uh, college, everybody started talking about Brian McLaren. Mm-hmm. So uh, just amazing. And people still are. Um, and so I, I want to jump into this Trumpism thing uh, for a couple minutes. Um, what do you think, why do you think evangelicalism has moved in this direction? Mm. I think there are, there are probably, you know, to, to be fair, we'd have to go like 20 le- levels down. And I think there'd be interesting things to say at mm-hmm. each level. So I'm not trying to be comprehensive here in any way, but let me mention three things. Um, first, uh, evangelicalism has had a long history of authoritarianism. Um, you know, it, it, people say the Roman Catholic Church has one pope. But evangelicals often have a pope in every congregation. And, um, and what evangelicals did is they, they said they had an inerrant authority source, which was the Bible. But then the preacher who interprets and applies the Bible, in a sense, gets the aura or the, you know, the, the patina of that, uh, of that inerrancy. 
And so it, it gives a lot of authority. And I think what has happened over many decades is that evangelical churches, especially with megachurches, because to be a megachurch pastor, you have to know how to work with large groups. You have to know how to wield power. You have to know how to appeal to people. Um, I think with the megachurch movement, we just aggregated many of the people with authoritarian uh, uh, personality uh, tendencies uh, into the evangelical community. Um, and, in, and in a sense, then all it takes is an authoritarian leader to go and woo over those people. They've already been aggregated. And then you woo their leaders and you get all the people who follow their leaders. So I think that's one dimension of what's happened. I don't think it's the whole dimension, but I think it's one important dimension. And, um, and when you tell people, believe what your authority figures tell you, and then you have a demagogue like Trump, who in a, one of the ways he gains power is by forcing people to admit things, they, to say things they know aren't true in order to gain pats on the back, starting with my inauguration crowds were bigger than any other. Now you just think that's stupid and that's egotistical, but you also realize, no, this is how people are manipulated uh, through lies. And you start with a, a, a lie like that, or even an earlier lie about the birther conspiracy. And then that goes all the way up to the big lie of the election um, and uh, yeah, I just think our, our, our religious communities are deeply complicit in creating that kind of submission. And I, I'd also have to add, it's not just the evangelicals. There's a whole sector of right-wing Catholics who've been taught that abortion is the only moral issue that matters. And religious leaders uh, have used that issue to raise huge amounts of money and to create huge degrees of loyalty. And so that rendered them vulnerable to, be, to being captured by a uh, 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 narcissistic uh, authoritarian demagogue. Why does it matter? Why does it not matter that he's not a Christian? Well, um, of course, as you know, uh, some of those uh, sycophantic uh, prosperity gospel megachurch evangelical leaders uh, were sure to disseminate rumors of his conversion. Paula Mm -hmm. White said that he was a Christian. But in a certain sense, this is another, another dimension is evangelical theology has some, I think, some deep, deep flaws. Um, and one of those flaws is they uh, separate, the, the, way they inter, the, the way they integrate politics and faith um, allows them to say, uh, politics is part of this world So we have much lower expectations for our political leaders than we do for our pastors. We never hire a pastor who's been divorced a bunch of times and has paid off porn stars, but we're very happy to elect people of that character to our political life. Well, when you segment your life to say morality matters in the church, but it doesn't matter in business or it doesn't matter in politics, um, I mean, to me, it's a laughable moral statement it's just pathetic, but it's deeply, deeply entrenched. And, and there's another layer to that, and that's race. And when you think that the entire project of the United States and the church in the United States had to coexist with slavery. And so they have a long history of saying the way you conduct your business life, um, as long as you have the right doctrines on Sunday, 
As long as you, you know, recite the creed or sign the doctrinal statement or, or get a tear in your eye when you sing the old rugged cross, that's what we care about. You can have slaves Monday through Saturday. Um, and, and that's deeply rooted in American Christianity. Yeah, yeah. So um, I am as fr- probably maybe not as frustrated as you have been with conservative evangelicalism over the years. Um, my my question is 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 there? But but I still care deeply. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. For them and and feel like there is still a way back. Yeah. Um, how how can uh, if you were to be able if you were to give advice to evangelical leaders maybe you have I don't know but yeah. if you were able to what would you say to them would be necessary to get on that road coming back? Yeah, I've been on many Zoom calls and private phone calls with evangelical leaders. I was just in fact right after January six within ten days of January six two leaders of evangelical denominations contacted me. We had private conversations about how frustrated they were and how they felt their hands were tied because even though they and a minority of their leaders see what's happening and see what's wrong, uh, if they speak up about it, they'll be fired or they'll be marginalized or their congregations will be emptied. And so, um, but I agree with you, we need evangelical, we need, uh, we we can't let evangelicals continue to self-destruct like this. Um, Eric, my biggest disappointment is not the, uh, the blind leaders of the blind like Eric Metaxas and Paula White and so on, who might be very nice people. I'm not condemning them as human beings, but they have, you know, strained at a gnat and swallowed a camel, uh, to quote someone uh, well-known. <laughs> um, uh, but they're not my biggest disappointment. My biggest disappointment are all the so-called moderates who have played it safe and tried to act as if they're above the fray. It's just like Dr. King said in his day, in his letter to the, from the Birmingham jail, that it's the white moderate that is, you know, they, they keep the system going as it is. So if I could make a plea to evangelicals, it would be this. I would plead with every evangelical who's, who's unhappy with where Trumpism is going. I would plead with them to take a risk, and the risk would be to just go public by saying, um, I feel in my spirit something is wrong with evangelicalism. I believe something bad has happened to the spirit of evangelicalism. Something is wrong with us, and we need to repent. You, you don't even need to explain all the details. You just need to say that much. Um, uh, you need to say, uh, truth matters. You need to say Trump lost the election. You need to say QAnon is a, a, a pathetic cult. Um, you know, you need to just be bold enough to say s- some very simple things. And what will happen is you'll find out which people are not really members of your church. They're members of the Fox News church. Uh, the good news of Rupert Murdoch means far more to them than the good news of Jesus Christ. And you might as well find it out now. Um, yeah. uh, and then you'll find those other people who are on the verge of leaving and you'll be able to, to build with them. And there'll be some people in the middle who will, you know, be swayed in a better direction. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's the, it's the moderates who've remained silent, who I think are the most culpable. Um, and, and what's sort of sad is that, uh, major evangelical leaders, um, 
it's just hard to find them. You know, so many of them have been sidelined by scandal or they've just played it safe and they're afraid to speak up. Yeah, we're going to actually uh, jump into that a little bit more too. We talk about your, uh, your book. So it acts as a good segue in that direction. Um, even though you're, oh yeah. Craig, I, I just think there's one other thing I want to say about that. Sure. Um, in many cases, the white pastor who needs to speak mm -hmm. up will not do so. Um, his wife has been begging him to speak up. I can't tell you how many stories I know of the wives of well-known evangelical leaders who are begging them to speak up. And so assuming that the husband won't do it, I wish the wife would do it. I wish she would go on social media and she would have permission to have her own voice. And, and when the wife won't do it, uh, I hope the children will do it. And in many cases, you know, the children are the ones, who'll, the adult children and even the teenagers will speak up. And I, I just think we are in such an emergency situation in evangelicalism that whoever is willing to speak up better do so um, because time is, uh, it, it, you know, we're, we're, we, the tipping point is probably behind us in many ways, but, you know, it's never too late. <laughs> Why do you, uh, let me ask you a follow-up to that. Why do you think um, uh, pastor, is it out of fear? Why are pastors not speaking up? Or I've always been under the assumption that they've been convinced that they're still convinced in some way, but you're saying that a lot of them aren't, but they're just not speaking up. So why aren't they? You know, one of the worst indictments of uh, conservative religious leaders is that they aren't really leaders, they're followers. And they become the chaplain to the real leaders. And the real leaders are right-wing politicians and right-wing media figures. So in some ways, Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson, they create a community. And then um, these pastors have learned how to be the chaplains to that community. And, um, and I, you know, at some point their conscience begins to bother them. But at that point they realize, shoot, I don't have anybody who really follows me. They all really follow Tucker Carlson. They all really follow Laura Ingram. And so it's, it's going to take, uh, and, and, and that's why I make my appeal to the wives and the children, because the, the men are thinking, you know, the pastors are thinking, this is where I get my salary. If I, if mm -hmm. I speak up, I'll be fired. If I speak up, my five biggest donors will leave. And so it, it's not just fear, like craven fear. It's also the sense of financial responsibility. I'll be left holding the bag and, and dealing with the chaos, uh, once, once I speak up and, you know, the truth is they should have spoken up 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And now they're in the, in a situation where they have a very, very set, a set of very unhealthy options to face, but the option of being silent and complicit with what has happened and even worse things that may happen. Cause I hope nobody doubts that far worse things could be down the horizon, you know, down the road. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's great stuff. Um, and we're going to jump back into some of this here uh, in a few minutes, because uh, I want to talk here about your book a little bit, Faith After Doubt. Um, first of all, what a, an incredible read um, that was. Um, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, you, um, you have a way of, of in, in all your stuff, it doesn't matter where it is, to you have, a, you take us on a journey and you're a storyteller and you're brutally honest, 
Um, I was, I was a little surprised at some of the stuff I read that uh, uh, I, I think in particular, the moment you're standing in front of the mirror, mm-hmm. getting ready to go preach. And that was just, uh, I, I mean, I've had the same moments before too, and I didn't even know other people had those moments. So your brutal honesty has a way of connecting with people um, in a way that, you know, they don't tell other people these things. Yeah. And so the fact that you're able to come out and just be honest about your own struggles and your own faith is, is the, I think the primary connecting point um, with your work with people out there Um, and faith after doubts, no exception to that. Um, So let's begin by asking the question, why did you want to write this book and why now? Yeah. Um, Well, uh, first, thanks for the the kind things you said about the book and, um, I, I, I think all of us can tell that, especially with the rise of Trumpism, that um, the evangelical community and the Catholic community, and I, I, I you know, the, if you were to take evangelicals and Catholics, um, you know, they're, they're roughly the same size, uh, somewhere between 13 and 16% of the population for each of them. Um, and they're, they're really facing a reckoning. Um, they're doubling down on things and, uh, that make them reject other things. And one of my biggest concerns, uh, well, a couple of my biggest concerns, first are the environment. You know, I, I think if we don't address climate change, all this, the same science that predicted what has happened with COVID-19 predicts what's going to happen to our planet. And the same foolish, short-sighted, uh, uh, deadly denial of COVID-19 will have even worse results with, with climate. And uh, so uh, I, I care about these communities that need to doubt what their leaders are telling them so that they will be free to now start engaging with issues that are life and death matters. The same thing with economic inequality. So much of our wealth in the whole world is being funneled to just a couple dozen families who own as much as half of the people in the world. And it's not just the disparity of wealth. You think about the amount of power that gives to 24 families or something. And you think how little power is left for all the rest of us. And, and that doesn't go good places, you know, that doesn't go good places. Um, and then uh, you think of the proliferation of weapons and this lust for guns in our country, but also nuclear, biological, chemical weapons and some of the worst weapons that we can imagine will be created in the coming decades. And, um, and we, we aren't ready to handle that. So I put all of those things together and I just realized that it's religious communities that are very often are keeping people believing things that result in disasters for, the, for our whole civilization. So people need permission to doubt. And so that's part of it you know, on a big scale. But on the other part of it is, you know, because of the books I write, my, my inbox is full every week with people who are having faith crises and including so many clergy. And so I just knew that there was a lot of pain out there and I hoped I might be able to, you know, tear a little edge off some of that pain. You know, one thing uh, I think that uh, faith after doubt helps people who may not experience doubt, or at least they think they're not experiencing doubt is 
how complicated doubt is. I think that a lot of people just sort of, you just doubt God and, and, but really there's so many psychological and other things going on. Um, that's really just a, a superficial and not even close to being accurate way that people experience doubt on a, on a deeper level. Um, and I think that that's one thing that is important to, uh, that the book points out. Um, go ahead. Well, I, I worked really hard on that because the more I thought about doubt, the more I realized that we tend to treat doubt as a personal problem. Um, but it really is a social problem and we have to deal with it as individuals, but we need to understand the social dimension of it, that many of our groups build belonging and rejection based on your adherence to beliefs. And they reward people who believe things, certain things, and they punish people who believe certain things. And here's the irony. If you believe something because you're rewarded or punished, um, I'm not sure you actually believe it. <laughs> and yeah. I'm not sure what kind of belief that is. I don't think it's the kind of faith that really makes a difference in a person's life. And so that's, uh, yeah. So the, all of that, I, I, I'm glad that you were impressed with that in the book because it, I, I do think we, it, it helps me a lot to understand the complexity of what we're dealing with. Yeah. So you're saying coerced, coerced faith is not a faith worth, uh, <laughs> yeah. worth embracing. Yeah. Um, one of the ideas that I want to talk about, because I was, uh, one of the things that was unexpected for me was how much uh, doubt relates to the social cultural aspects of things. And I began picking up on um, the way that the church has, we, earlier we were talking about Trumpism and how the various ideas that you've pre- uh, presented in here, specifically the stages, um, that you provided the stages of faith, I think is what you call them. Yeah. Uh, the simplicity is the stage one complexity, stage two perplexity, stage three and harmony stage four. Um, and, bef- uh, right before you start, uh, talking about that, you talk about this idea of self-sabotage, self-sabotaging. And I want to talk a little bit more about that because I'm wondering, especially in, today's day and age where we're in the Me Too movement, where we're seeing a lot of uh, people who have been abused, sexually abused and stuff like that coming forward and saying, my pastor, whatever has abused me. Um, Is this related to self-sabotage? So I I think it is uh, on a lot of different levels, Um, but you could think of it, I I could see it playing out in two different ways, Eric. you think, let's say there's a pastor who himself has doubts. He, let's say he teaches literal six-day creation on Sunday because he knows that's what the people in his church want to hear. But deep in his own mind, he doesn't really think that's true. He, he thinks that the fossil record and the size of the universe and the compelling story of a, a you know, 13.7 billion year old universe and all the rest makes way more sense. But because he knows what it's, his people want to hear, he goes ahead and says what he thinks they want to hear or because he's afraid that he'd get in trouble with a seminary professor. If he found out that he changed his view on that, you know, for whatever reason, he isn't honest. And so he now has a secret life and his public life. Well, you can imagine that once you learn to do that in one area, it becomes easier to do that in other areas where you then, you then find out, Oh, he's got a secret life 
about how he handles his sexuality. And then you, you know, you just start, or you find out behind the scenes, he screams and yells at the other pastoral staff, but on Sunday he's Mr. Loving and kind and funny. And, and I think there is this, you know, we, we use the word integrity to mean an integrated person, a person whose private life and public life are integrated. And when a person loses integrity, we call that disintegration. And I think what happens is people, their religious community, the act of putting on a front or facade or wearing a mask creates personal disintegration. And then suddenly it becomes, you know, visible when you find out Jerry Falwell is, you know, has all these things going on and, and so on. So, you know, I don't, I don't say that to shame or condemn him. I say it to say that, that, we want to jump on sex being the problem when maybe dishonesty and disintegration is the, is this bigger problem that we've got a whole lot of pretending going in a whole lot of different areas. Mm-hmm. But there's another way that I could see it working too, where a person, and you, I, I know Eric, you would not be surprised to hear this, but how many pastors, including well-known pastors of mega churches have told me privately that they hate their life. Um, and that they don't believe in what they're doing, and that it just feels like a machine that now they have to keep tending. Um, And I can also imagine people on some level thinking, I don't love what I'm doing. I don't even believe in it anymore. And I have to pretend I believe in it every Sunday. And then in some ways, a moral failure becomes their way of self-sabotaging because it gets them out of this work that they don't really want to do anyway. I mean, I don't think that would consciously happen, but it's easy for me to imagine it subconsciously happening. So I, and I'm stereotyping here a little bit. So let me clear, let me just say that at the outset, but I imagine that a lot of these people who have been caught up in these, um, in the, the sex stuff in particular, um, would, well, let's just say people who have are self-sabotaging in some way, because it doesn't have to be sex, mm-hmm. um, self-sabotaging in some way often are also the people who will, uh, uh fight against say, uh, uh, congregant who's struggling with doubt. Yes. 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 So why is that? Yeah. Well, um, I, one way, the term I use for it in the book is that people double down. So, um, someone says I'm having doubts myself. And so they're trying to fight their own doubts. And so the fury that they're trying to fight their own doubts with gets poured out on the person who comes to them with doubts. Or this is so common. I mean, I can't, you know, we've all seen these stories. The person, you find out the person who's the most militantly anti-gay is actually struggling with his own sexual orientation. And you realize Mm -hmm. he's fighting it out in the world as his way of fighting it in himself. Um, And, uh, and look, I, 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 and on the issue of sexuality, the fact is just as a whole lot of us have more doubts than we're, than we talk about in public, a whole lot of people have a whole lot more sexual temptations in private than they can talk about in public. And that creates another level of dishonesty. And people have financial problems in private that they don't talk about in public creates another level of dishonesty. And and you get enough of these plates spinning of having to keep facades going. And, you know, that creates a pretty tense system. Wow. Yeah. Um, trying to and, keep and I, that. Up. 
Yeah, go ahead. You know, and I just want to say, and I'm not saying that to shame anybody. I'm saying it to mm-hmm. say, we're all human beings. We're all a mess. And, and uh, I'm not trying to shame anybody for having problems. What I want to do is liberate people from pretending they, from having to pretend they don't have problems, you know? Yeah. And I think that's one of the problems with the story that, or the narrative that evangelical conservative evangelicals in particular, because they seem to, uh, and probably conservative Catholics too. Uh, the story they tell um, is uh, that you can live a certain life or have a certain life that's just, it's an idealism. It's not yeah. attainable. It's not real in any way. And I just think that the gospel needs to go back to what is more real and we need to embrace that instead. Yes, I think, I think that'll help. I think that's right. And, and there are many theological dimensions to that as well. One of them being that the, the assumption that what the gospel is really about is me as an individual getting my soul into heaven after I die, rather than saying, no, the gospel is about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And when that happens, it's better for me as an individual. But if I'm only focused on my individual soul, and I think that's the, the primary uh, you know, focus of God's concern, it, it creates this, uh, yeah, it, it, it feeds into this whole system that we're talking about. And it creates a narrative that creates a story that's primarily about me. And, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is part of growing into a mature human being is realizing that it's not all about me. <laughs> There's something bigger going on. And I'm part of that something bigger, which gives my life meaning, but mm-hmm. it's not all about me. Yeah. I want to uh, talk for a minute about uh, chapter seven, Doubt as Descent, um, yes. one of my favorite chapters. And uh, um, I-, I wanted to, I'm trying to frame this question right. First, I think it's, uh, it's important because it demonstrates for us that doubt shouldn't be a stopping point, that, uh, that we need to move through it. Yes. And I think your chapter is helpful in, in teaching us how to do that. But you also talk about um, the intolerance that you have faced within the evangelical community in particular. Um, Why do uh, many conservative evangelicals view uh, doubt as a spiritual deficiency? Hmm. Well, um, look, there are all kinds of Bible verses that, that, um, that get quoted, right? Uh, Thomas, uh, you know, we call him doubting Thomas. And Jesus says, and, or Peter, when Peter's walking on the water and sinks, Jesus say, why do you doubt? So it's easy to take verses like that and make it sound like, uh, you know, the whole purpose of them is to tell us that we are not allowed to have questions about faith, uh, questions about religious teaching. And one of the things I try to do in the book is to say, I, we make a mistake when we think that faith equals adherence to beliefs. Um, I don't think faith is adherence to a list or set of beliefs. I think faith is an attitude of humility and trust in the face of mystery. Hmm. And um, faith is an ability to say, I don't know, and to trust the goodness of God to help me. Faith is an ability to say, I'm imperfect, and I trust the grace of God to help me. And um, it's, uh, and because of our focus on, on beliefs, then we use beliefs as belonging markers. Um, they're uh, our marker. You believe this, this, and this. 
you're in with us. We're the only people who believe these six things. Our, our other group over there, they only believe four of the six things that we believe. And so every group begins to make itself special by its unique set of beliefs. And, um, and now if I doubt them, I will be, I'm, I'm showing disloyalty to the group identity. And I yes. think that really complicates things for people. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, oh, go ahead. And, and that's where doubt becomes a kind of dissent because doubt says, look, it's not just that I don't believe this, or it, maybe I do believe it, or maybe I'm just not even, I'm not sure if I believe it, or maybe I don't even understand it enough to know whether I believe it. I just don't think this is the right way to reject people and accept people based on this condition of adhering to a statement. Yeah. Yeah. Group, uh, group identity was another, uh, important aspect of your book. Um, and it made me wonder if part of the, uh, angst or the, uh, anger that maybe a pastor might feel is that when a, when a lay person is doubting that that in some way is reflective upon them, uh, that they either haven't, that it's almost offensive. I think that, um, you're not doubting God, you're doubting, our core beliefs, you're doubting everything that makes us who we are. And that is, uh, I think, can result in it being somewhat offensive. And in fact, um, Eric, that really ties back to and makes clear something I don't know if I made clear enough before when I brought up authoritarianism, because it's the authority figure who requires those beliefs. So in a sense, to defect from one of those beliefs or to question one of those beliefs becomes an act of rejection of that authority figure's leadership. And so now it becomes a power struggle as well as an issue of belonging. So um, I don't want to ask leading questions, um, but a part of this will be a little leading. Do you think that this applies to what we experienced on January 6th with group identity? Very, very much, very much so. Like, you think of the QAnon conspiracy that has made huge inroads in evangelical and charismatic Pentecostal churches around the country and around the world. It's just bizarre to me that there's QAnon spreading around the world. Um, uh, uh, so yes, I, I, what, what happens is when you have been predisposed to believe what authority figures tell you, and, and when you've been predisposed to say you believe what people around you believe who you want to belong to, then it's very easy to get sucked into cultic groups. It's very easy to get sucked into conspiracy theories. And something that these groups share is they offer us beliefs that make us feel like the virtuous hero and give us some other group that we can hate and condemn as the villainous, uh, you know, reprobate. Um, and so, you know, it's just, to me, it's just ridiculous, but a whole lot of people believe that, especially in this QAnon conspiracy, that Democrats like to drink the blood of babies that they've sexually abused. I mean, you just think, how, how could any sane person believe this? But it happens and people get sucked into groups where this is the thing to believe. And, you know, the internet creates these rabbit holes where you hear, hear enough to reinforce it and it becomes believable. Uh, and, uh, and churches are, are ch churches haven't taught people the skills of critical thinking. Yes. Yes. And, and the reason they haven't is because they don't think it's their job 
But what's so interesting to me, you want to talk about quoting Bible verses. Paul says um, in 1 Corinthians 14, for example, uh, in evil, you should be children, but in your thinking, you should be mature adults. <laughs> so <laughs> critical thinking is, you know, something that, that we need, uh, yes. and, uh, but we haven't, we, we've done the opposite. Yeah. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, there's a little bit of fear there that critical thinking will lead people to doubt. And, and it will. It will lead them yeah. to doubt and it will help them then find out what is worth believing and what is less worth believing. Mm -hmm. Well, I have kind of a, a fun question here um, as it relates to the uh, uh, revolutionary love chapter. So I ask this question to a lot of people that I meet and I always get interesting, different answers. Um, but you're in reading that chapter, the question popped up. And so what I want to do is it's sort of like a scenario. I want to present to you a scenario and get your, your initial reaction to that scenario. So we have Joe Christian and Joe atheist. Joe Christian volunteers at a soup kitchen. Um, he wants to do that. Uh, because he wants to show God's love. He's well-intentioned. He feels like he's being obedient to social responsibility. Next to him is Joe Atheist. Joe Atheist also volunteers at the, at the same soup kitchen. He wants to be social, also socially responsible, and he also genuinely cares for other people. What is the difference in the act of service between the two? So, one says I'm doing it for the glory of God. And the other says I'm doing it because I want to be socially responsible. And for all these other reasons, is there any difference in the social responsibility aspect of doing that? What, what would it mean to do that for the glory of God? Mm -hmm. You know, Eric, as you um, create that scenario, I, I think of a story in one of CS Lewis's uh, fictional works where there is a, a person who has been a loyal soldier of this false God. Uh, and he dies and meets uh, Aslan, you know, who's sort of the Christ figure. And he's, he's expecting that Aslan is going to reach out his paw and bare his claws and, you know, cut his head off because he served the wrong God. And he welcomes, uh, this fellow into uh, into whatever the you know the version of heaven is, and the fellow says, "But I served you know this other god." And Aslan says, "Any true service rendered to a false god, I take to myself, and any false service rendered to a true god cannot be you know rendered to to me." So it, it was Aslan's way of and Lewis's way of saying. Um, it may be less the words that people use and the actual intents of their heart that really matter the most, you know? Uh, and so I think, uh, I think uh, to me, I, I would just want to say, isn't it wonderful that two human beings, a Christian and atheist want yeah. to love their neighbors. And I would say in their love for their neighbors, they're both glorifying God, whether they use that language or not. Uh, because God is glorified when, uh, when human beings act like human beings. <laughs> One of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. 
And when people live with the fullness of, of life and love, that's, that's, I think, honoring to God, whether they use the word or not. Okay. That's good. That's a good answer. Um, I want to ask you a tangential question because I think that uh, you're passionate about this. And so um, I'm, it's a question that I continually am asking myself. Um, and that has to do with race. Um, I'm just curious, um, what can the, what can the white church do to help with what's going on out there? Yeah. Well, um, the, the white church has enormous power and responsibility. So the first thing they need to do is to stop listening to other white people who are telling them that race <laughs> isn't a problem. And yeah. they need to listen to people of color and really listen to their stories. And when they hear their stories, most white people are going to have defenses come up and they're gonna to wanna to argue with those stories. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we, we as white people have to quiet that voice. That's the voice of all the other white people who've told us things. And we have to really let other people's stories get through to us. Um, Just for example, Eric, uh, last Sunday, I was uh, at a vigil in a town nearby where it's uh, it's a town uh, where uh, farm workers live, most of whom are Mexican and a high percentage of whom are um, uh, who are undocumented. And that's another whole story about how, you know, the food that we eat is picked by farm workers who are undocumented. And that's because well, it's for a whole lot of reasons. And it's not because the farm workers are bad, it's because of our system that loves to exploit free labor or, or underpay labor. Um, but uh, a man in that town uh, put his 12 year old son to bed and said to his son, I'm hearing all kinds of voices in my head. I'm hearing angels and demons talk to me. So it was pretty clear this father was having a psychotic break. Um, A few hours later, the son was asleep. The father had gone outside, grabbed a shovel, and was banging the shovel against the neighbor's house, yelling and screaming. So he's having a psychotic break. The police showed up. And in 13 seconds, the man was dead on the ground. He'd been shot. Um, Now, you know, you can't prove that he was shot because he was a brown man instead of a white man, right? Right. But it's pretty clear to me that a white man having a mental episode has a higher chance of surviving an encounter with the police than a brown man having a mental uh, episode. And so, and we just see stories like this, you know, happening again and again. We've got to listen to those stories. And instead of minimizing them or trying to fix them, we have to say, instead of saying this is their problem, to say, that's my fellow human being. And especially if I'm a Christian, that's my fellow human being. I've got to care about that person. That's Jesus Christ. That's the least of these. And as much as I do it to him, I'm doing it to Jesus Christ. If we, would to, if we were to do that, that would get us started on the right path. But until we listen, I don't think anything is going to get better. Until we let our hearts really be touched. And then from there, it would be so good for us to build relationships. Um, but the fact is, a white person who hasn't gotten in touch with his own privilege and uh, supremacy and all of the things that he did he didn't wasn't born with they were drilled into him through parents and grandparents and teachers and so on and television and all the rest you know we white people need to understand for us to be around people of other races 
we bring them grief in a hundred ways without even realizing it. So, um, you know, we, we, we have to understand that we have a responsibility to listen and to be changed and to be humble. That's, that's where I'd start. Does yeah. And I would go ahead. I was just going to ask how does that make sense? And what would you add to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I would implore uh, my listeners to really hone in on that listening thing that that really took me a long time to get. Yeah. Like I understood what it means to listen, but I didn't understand what it meant to listen in the way that in here. Yeah, yeah. And not say anything and just take it in and try to empathize as much as possible and just really get I, I'm a, I'm a, I want to help. And so my initial reaction is, uh, what can we do to solve this? It's a problem. Let's, and that's the wrong approach to take. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, for a white I'll, person, I'll tell, it is. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story about this. I was, had a great honor once, uh, oh, 10, 15 years ago. I was invited to, I was with a couple of Native American friends and they were going to this large meeting of Native Americans and I think I was the only white person in the room. I, I, there, I, as I recall, there were 150 or 200 Native Americans and they were having a discussion. So I was honored. I was given the great privilege of just listening, you know. And I'll never forget one of the fellows went up to the mic and he said, um, there, there's a lot of talk about reparations, how we can receive reparations for the wrongs that were done to us. He said, it's just too bad that white people don't understand. We have to talk reparations because we have no relationship. In other words, if we were to have a relationship, all of our conversations would be different. But because we don't have a relationship, um, uh, he, he, he said, you know, the best we can hope for is to get some money out of this, right? We're, we're never going to get a sincere apology. The best we can hope for is money. And, and it just reminds me, and I, I don't say that to say, so if you would just apologize, you could get out of money. <laughs> but I'm saying, what, what, when I was in that room that day, I felt, what, for the first time, I think I felt, what does it feel like to be a group of people who've been excluded by another group of people for generation after generation? And I remember it, it was empathy. I was able to feel empathy in a way I hadn't before when that man spoke and all of us need empathy for, for our neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Um, thank you. Thank you for answering that question. Um, uh, we're going to wrap up here. I just want to uh, plug your book in again, faith after doubt by Brian McLaren is uh, a must read. It doesn't even matter if you feel like you're going through doubt. There is so much content in there for you to learn from. Um, and if anything, uh, it's great for pastors and therapists to better understand what some of their congregants or their clients might be experiencing. So just want to thank you, Brian, for uh, meeting with us today and just having a casual conversation about some cultural stuff in the church. Well, I'm so glad you're, um, you're doing this podcast because podcasts are creating space for people to think new thoughts. You know, what you just said about race, when you think about it, it involves white people doubting that they have all the answers. <laughs> and, and it's only when they doubt that they already have all the answers that they'll be able to listen from the heart and learn. And this applies to so many things in life. So thanks for your good work too.